Well, hey there, all souls. We are in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 29, and today we are wrapping up our series in the Sermon on the Mount, this collection of Jesus' teachings about life in the kingdom of heaven. I would argue the most important teaching in human history. And he ends it not with a pep talk, not with a rally, three points, and a brilliant illustration, or with a touching story, but instead with a series of warnings. And so, listen carefully, for this is the word of the Lord. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Friends, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but what you just heard endures forever. Amen. For my 28th birthday, Jill and I spent a week in Scotland, and while we were there, a friend told me that you absolutely have to do two things. Number one, eat black pudding. It's disgusting. Don't do it. And number two, bag a Monroe. That is, hike one of the 282 peaks in Scotland that rise over 3,000 feet. And because we were red-blooded Americans, we decided to bag the tallest of the Monroes, which is Ben Nevis. Now, Jill and I had done quite a bit of hiking, and so we knew how to pack and how to prep and all that stuff. We knew what to expect, but we had not experienced the extreme variability of the weather at the mountain. Now, it was a clear day when we started, but here's Jill about halfway through. 
and that photo was taken with the aperture wide open and she is standing only about three feet away from me. So even though the trail is completely clear in the daylight, it is super easy to get turned around when the mist rolls in and it comes in fast. And so to navigate, you rely upon cairns, these piles of stone that other travelers have laid that serve as a kind of signpost to let you know that you're on the right path. And that's important because if you step off the path just a few degrees, you could be walking into a 300 foot drop. Jesus throws out a series of warnings at the end of his sermon, these contrasts that serve as kinds of signposts. And they're meant to steer us toward the narrow path that leads toward the kingdom and away from the edge of the cliff. He says, keep on the narrow path. Pay attention to who and what is discipling you because you might not be who you think you are. And so choose wisely. There's this kind of intimate link between information and action, between hearing his word and putting them into action. Social scientists and cultural observers alike have noted that we are living in what is called the information age, where you know, things like uh, the ability to use stone and bronze and atomic energy have classified epochs of time before. We now live in a day where information is the most prized commodity. And not only is information more accessible to us than ever before, but the just sheer amount of information that is out there is growing exponentially. Systems theorist Buckminster Fuller, best name ever, by the way, well, he developed this model known as the knowledge doubling curve, which says essentially that the amount of knowledge out there in the world up to the year 1900 doubled every century. Before the year 1500, it took 250 years for knowledge to double. And from Jesus to the printing press, it took 1,500 years for all of the cumulative knowledge in human civilization to double. But then, between the turn of the last century and World War II, that curve sped up to doubling every 25 years. By 1990 and the explosion of the internet, the curve had reached every 13 months. And now, with the internet of things, Analysts predict that knowledge will double every 13 hours. Enter John Connor, Skynet, and the robot apocalypse. And yet with all of that information out there, we're not able to keep up. And so there's this disconnect between what there is to know and what we are possibly capable of knowing. And this has introduced a kind of information gap anxiety into the world. It's been said that the Dutch polymath Erasmus was the last man alive who possibly could have read everything that there was to read. He died just before the printing press. Trying to do so now would actually be quite hazardous to your health, like in this clip from the sketch comedy show Portlandia. Ah, oh, Maggie's running late. Okay. Hey, did you guys read that thing in the New Yorker last month about how golf is an analogy for marriage? I did. Mm -hmm. I did read that. Did you hear the thing in McSweeney's? Mm. I was comparing CD tracks and album tracks. Did you read that? Yeah. Did you read that thing in Mother Jones about eco chairs and eco ways to sit? I did. 
Yeah. Oh, you did? Did you read that thing in Spain about all the festivals? Uh-huh. Did you read that thing in Pace? It was about the national. Oh, I saw that. Did you read that thing in Dwell about all the oh. mid-century houses? Yeah. Did you read the New York Times? Yes. New York Observer? Yes. Washington Post? Yes. Wall Street Journal? Of course I read it. Did you read that steampunk article in Boing Boing? I did not like the end of it. Did you read that skywriting over the Willamette River? Yes. Did you read that fortune cookie? Yes. From last night? Yes. Did you read it? Yes. There were two. Yes. Did you read that thing that guy wrote in the sand on the beach? Yeah. Did you read the Portland Mercury? Yeah. Did you read the Willamette Week? Yeah. Did you read the Seattle Stranger? Beginning to end. Did you read the SF Weekly? I loved it. Harvard Lampoon? Well written. Did you read Mad Magazine? I did not like the end of it. Did you read Kathy? That was cute. Did you read Family Circus? Sure. Did you read Calvin and Hobbes? Sure. Did you read the Boston Globe? Sure. Did you read the Washington Blade? We read it together. Did you read? Uh huh. Did you read? Mm-hmm. Did you read? Of course I did. Did you read? I read it to a friend of mine. Did you read the closing credits of that movie? Yeah, did you read that book? Did, did you read it? Did you read the Bible? Did, did you read it? Did you read it? Finger writing on the window? Did you guys read the new Portland Monthly? It's crazy. <laughs> Come on, you all know people like that. And I don't know if you caught it, but somewhere in the random stream of articles and bits of esoterica, the question was asked, did you read the Bible? And while it's funny, there's also an uncomfortable truth in there. Is the Bible something that we just read as one more bit of information stacked up against a sea of other bits of information? Or do we come to it not as information, but as a source of formation? Something that's going to shape us into a particular kind of person. See, the problem with the rate at which information comes at us is that we can't possibly act upon it all. We hear about this terrible accident somewhere on the other side of the world and we can have an emotional response to it, even though we are totally disconnected from the event. We get used to having information coming at us all the time that we have no ability and no intention to act upon. The media critic Neil Postman draws attention to what he calls the information-action ratio when he said this, the tie between information and action has been severed. Information is now a commodity that can be bought and sold or used as a form of entertainment or worn like a garment to enhance one's status. It comes indiscriminately, directed at no one in particular, disconnected from usefulness. We are glutted with information, drowning in information. We have no control over it, don't know what to do with it. And so with everything there is to know out there, we have gotten used to receiving information that leaves us without a corresponding action response, or at least conditions us to think that having the right kind of information is the same thing as doing. But as Jesus ends the sermon, he doesn't want us to just hear the words. He wants us to experience life. After describing what life in the kingdom of God looks like, he leaves us with the choice, you can either enter in or you can walk away. You can either partner with the Spirit in putting into practice what I've said, or you can choose another way. You can either trust that the life that I have described is the best possible way to live and apprentice yourself to me, or you can choose to be discipled by something else. But either way, someone or something is discipling you. It's shaping the way that you act in the world. And despite this myth that has been hanging around for hundreds of years that we are these autonomous, rational beings, 
We are actually dependent creatures who need each other, who need God shaped by our longings and our desires, and we need to have them calibrated. Here's the thing. That narrow path that Jesus describes, it isn't just about believing the right things. It's actually about becoming the kind of person who naturally does what Jesus says. These words of mine, i.e., the the whole Sermon on the Mount, it's not everything that Jesus has to say about life in the kingdom, but it is the center of gravity about what following him looks like. And so he says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. And the word for that is poeo. It pops up all over the place in the closing section of the sermon, actually 10 times to be exact. And it's one of those words that has a pretty wide semantic range. It can mean to put something into motion, to practice, to do, to act upon, to bring forth or produce, to accomplish to obey. It's the word Jesus uses in verses 17 through 19 to describe a tree that produces good fruit or bad fruit. It's the word he uses in verse 21 when he describes the one who does the will of the Father and the word he uses in verse 24 when he says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. And so I just want to be super clear that Jesus does not intend for his words to be this kind of soaring ethical theory or this lofty ideal. No, he expects us to do what he taught. He tells us 10 times to poeo. He expects us to trust that he knows the best way to live and that the only way that we're going to find life is by being with him, patterning our, our thoughts after his so that we can do the things that he did. That's that narrow space on the ridge where trust and practice come together. That is where we step onto the path of the kingdom. You simply can't pull trust and practice apart. Neither one can bear the weight without the other. At some point, you have to poeo. And it's not about hearing and thinking, oh, that Greek word is cool. No, you, you've got to work it into the thread of your everyday life. You have to obey it. And the reason that Jesus offers these warnings is because there are a couple of ways that we can get lost. False teachers, on the one hand. I mean, these are the ones who say the right sounding things. Maybe they check the right boxes when it comes to belief. And they get high marks when it comes to effectiveness, power, impact, esteem, popularity. But the question is, is that the fruit that Jesus is looking for? Because, I mean, you can have all of those things. You can be killing it in your ministry, in your mission, but you can also have an inner life that is far away from the peace, generosity, mercy, grace, humility, all of the things that mark the character of the kingdom. I got to tell you, I mean, I don't know a single pastor who does not sweat a little bit when they read this. But the fruit that Jesus is looking for is defined by character over accomplishment. And these ones, they might champion the king for a whole host of reasons, but they aren't really interested in the kingdom that he is inviting them to step into. And there are a whole lot of false teachers disguising themselves as fellow travelers. 
But see, there's a drop off on the other side of the path as well. We're able to walk this road only because we see Jesus walking it ahead of us. And we run the risk of falling off the edge when we try to race ahead uh, to, to get in front of Jesus, to get to the kingdom ahead of him, or to think that we can find maybe a shorter path than the one that he's leading us on. And to illustrate this, Jesus describes those who think that they are in his camp, and they, they do all these kind of amazing works. And maybe that's, you know, winning souls for Christ. Maybe it's throwing their lives into social reform of unjust systems, and those are not bad things. Those are good things. But the problem is those can be done totally disconnected from a relationship with God. And when that happens, they become a way of building the kingdom without the king. There is no trust apart from action. There is no action that will substitute for trust. It's like James says when he writes, Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Faithful response is the narrow path of the kingdom. When trust in him leads to obedience to him, that's what it means to enter into the narrow gate. And the only thing that exists besides action is inaction. There's no such thing as intending to act but then not doing it. To hear and not to obey Jesus is to believe that he is wrong. And it's to believe that you can build your life on another teacher. And if you're wondering, man, is Jesus trying to scare me? The answer is, yeah. But it's not because he wants to fill you with anxiety. No, he wants to arrest your heart. He wants to take you by the shoulder. He wants to look you in the eye and say, amid all of the other things that are coming at you, all of the noise, all that flood of information, the kind of life you build and what you build it on matters. So to drive this point home, Jesus closes out his teaching with this vivid contrast, uh, two kinds of builders. If you grew up in the church, you know the song, you, uh, you know the story. And so I just want to say stick with me because it's really easy to get kind of stuck in that Sunday school lesson mode and just kind of dull your ear to it, to what Jesus is actually saying. But you got to stick with it because it's weighty. The one who hears these words of mine and poeo, puts them into practice. That one builds on a solid foundation. That person is wise. Not only does that word mean wise, but somebody who's working with this kind of practical intelligence. It's not just a, a moral word, it's a mental word. For that person, when the, when the winds and the rains come and the flood, the house stands steady because the, sound, because the foundation is solid. And by contrast, the one who hears these words, hears all that Jesus has to say and does not poeo, is like a person who builds on sand. And that person is a fool. Someone who lacks a kind of proper grip on reality. Just kind of moving through life without ever looking beneath the surface, examining what really matters. And when the rains and the floods and the winds come, that person's world collapses. And here's what I love about that. What Jesus says, anyway. Is that Jesus doesn't say that, you know, if the rains come, 
He says when. I mean, life is hard. Even the best things about it, I mean, relationships, family, work that you love, they're hard. Marriage is beautiful and wonderful and life-giving and hard. There are storms. Kids are amazing. I mean, when your first child is born and you, you think you couldn't love something more and then the second one comes along and the cup that you thought was full is only halfway to the top. But it's hard. There are storms. You know all about that. St. Augustine in the 4th century is one of the first to kind of interpret this parable in, by looking at the kind of hardships that come at us. You know, the sudden illness, the, the loss of a job, the loss of a loved one, the death of a dream. Jesus knows that storms come. He's not this out-of-touch idealist. He's just ruthlessly honest about reality. Life is good and beautiful and hard. And Jesus doesn't say that the wise builder is somehow immune, that the storm somehow just kind of blows over. That the path of his home, you know, just is there and it goes over that to land on the foolish one. He's not saying that the storm comes for the foolish one. No, he's just saying that the storm comes. And those who build their lives practicing the way of Jesus and those who don't, I mean, it's the same flood. So please hear this. He is not saying that putting his words into practice is going to lead you away from trouble. But he is promising that following his way provides you with a path that will lead you through it. Whatever the storm is, it's going to threaten to kick down the walls of your life. But in that process, it's actually going to reveal what kingdom you have built your life upon. It will either be one that you can cling to and hold you or one that will crumble and drag you along with it. Everyone builds a life. The question isn't, are you building a life? The question is, what are you building your life on? Is it with Jesus and putting into practice his way, empowered by the Holy Spirit, this totally countercultural vision for how to be human under the reign and rule of heaven, or is it anything else? And as I said, Jesus finishes here not with some kind of heart-tugging story with the, the swelling music coming behind him. No, he finishes with the warning. What are you going to do with what you've heard? Weigh it against all of the other information that's coming at you or take a step on the path toward the kingdom. Philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once wrote that there's a generally accepted metaphor that compares life to a road. In a physical sense, a road is an external reality. No matter whether anyone is walking on it or not, no matter how the individual travels on it, the road is the road. But in the spiritual sense, the road comes into existence only when we walk on it. That is, the road is how it is walked. Jesus is ahead, just a, a little further along the trail. And he's already built the signpost to guide you through the mist. He's asking you to step forward and to trust that the path he has set you on is the one that leads to life. 
And so imagine how different life would be if you took him at his word. Imagine how different our world would be if those who claim to follow him put his word into practice. And now, friends, as we come to the table, we come to remember that the one who asks us to follow is the one who was sent by the Father. And the one who sent the Spirit that we may be the church sent into the world. And so as we come to his table, let us pray. The Lord be with you. Now lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We give thanks to God the Father that our Savior Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave to us this meal to remember his sacrifice until he comes again. At his last supper, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper. and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith as signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, take, eat, and drink. Remember and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. Friends, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen. Amen.